Today's reading comes from Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. As you're being seated, uh, let's open in prayer. As we shift, Lord, from discussion of finances to, to this topic of persecution, I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive what you have for us today. We thank you for this topic and, and the difficulty that it presents to us. So with this, I ask that you would, you would reveal yourself to us in this text today. In your name I pray. Amen. Now, some time ago, I took a course on how Christianity has grown and spread historically from the beginning of the church all the way through into the modern times. Now, I'm kind of a nerd. I love history. So during this time, during one of the lectures, we watched a video. And, and there was this a group of American and North American pastors who went to China, and they were interviewing Chinese pastors. And so uh, this American guy, he, uh, he was from a fairly large church. He asks this Chinese leader, you know, by the way, this Chinese leader had 80,000 people in his church, over hundreds of churches. He asked this tiny leader, how do you train your pastors? So, the, so this guy with no teeth responds in this way. He says, well, first of all, the pastoral candidate has to be not a new Christian. Well, that makes sense, right? Like, if you're in an airplane and you don't want the pilot's first time to be while you're in there, right? So, that, you know, we get that. That makes sense. His second condition was, well, you know, of the Bible, he had to have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. He had to have one of those memorized, preferably more. And we're like, okay, that's a little weird. Well, they just, don't they just have a Bible? The third thing he says made our jaws drop. He said that the pastoral candidate had to be proven worthy. He had to have spent time in jail or police custody before he could be a pastor. And we're like, what? So the, the candidate for pastoral ministry was a criminal record check? You know, like, like all of us watching the video understood that, that in order to be a pastor, this man had to suffer for his faith. And then we realized the implications of the memorization. If you were jailed and if you had your Bible taken from you, if you had the text memorized, you could still minister. Our jaws dropped. Persecution, being tortured, being jailed, and ministering to those in jail was an essential normative part of being a pastor in that part of China at that time. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, okay, I know we're talking about persecution this morning, but come on, that's China. What about here? Well, it's easy to distance ourselves this morning from this topic. You know, mentally, we kind of don't want to go there. We... You know, we have, to, we have to ask the question, is, is this requirement, is this what God wants us for here, for Vancouver, for 2019? Is this what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5? You know, is the promise of persecution the reality for Vancouver as it is in China? Because, you know, let's be honest, this verse is really easy to read, isn't it? You know, we, we read, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we subconsciously kind of um, hold our breath and hope that we could speed by reading this sucker so we don't actually get any of this persecution stuff stuck on us on the way by. We live in an elevated society, don't we? We don't live in China. We don't live in Syria. We don't live in Rwanda, North Korea. And we don't live in Myanmar. Persecution doesn't happen here, right? Hmm. Yeah, right. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that persecution is real. 
We know that it exists here. We know that it, it has a foothold in Vancouver. And we know that despite our progressive society, people inside the church and outside of the church are persecuted. Full disclosure here. This is a really difficult sermon to write. I actually wrote this thing three different times. It's not, it wasn't because I had you know, special divine revelation multiple times, but it's because I felt burdened by this text. Look, come on. I am a white male in my mid-40s. By virtue of that, like written in my yearbook, probably was said beside it is most likely to not be persecuted. That's me. So how do I get up here this morning and portray to you the reality of suffering and persecution? I wanted, I wanted to take this seriously. I want us to actually dig in and not, and not tread lightly on persecution, to give it the seriousness that it deserves. So with this firmly in our grasp, Uh, We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the promise of persecution. We're going to look at the problem of persecution. And we're going to tie it all together and look at the hope of persecution. And you'd think after rewriting it three times, I would kind of P word for that. But no, I'm not that clever. So the promise of persecution. We know the persecution is not unique to Christianity. We know historically and anecdotally that that globally suffering and persecution exists in all sorts of areas for all sorts of reasons. Generally speaking, structurally, persecution can be conscious or it can be subconscious. It's a tool used to maintain or prop up a common cultural narrative. A set of beliefs that a society or a group of people hold at a specific time and place. For example, persecution can be used as a tool to keep people in line. Basic thuggery, right? You know, you beat somebody up to keep them in line so they can hold the status quo idea. You know, we see, I'll be honest, I see this in the rise of the LGBTQ agenda. I think, let's face it, I think they got tired of getting beat up. You can also see this in the American South with the KKK movement. The second thing, persecution can also be used to highlight or correct a deviation from normal belief or, or desired cultural narrative. Uh, we can make an example of someone. You put them on a pedestal, cut them down to show that everybody else has to fall in line. A great example of this is McCarthyism in the 1950s. Ironically, I was having a conversation with a lady last night who was from Russia, and we had this interesting dialogue of the, what McCarthyism was. It was really intriguing to her. But McCarthyism is, McCarthyism is this. It's a practice of making accusations of subversion or treason, treason without proper regard for evidence. It was characterized by the heightened political repression and a campaign to spread fear of communist influence on American institutions and espionage by Soviet agents. In English, that means in this area, if you were left-wing leaning politically, you were painted as a Russian communist sympathizer or a spy. You were societally, politically, and personally destroyed without any regard whether it was true or not. Right-wing democratic capitalism was the only cultural acceptable narrative at the time. All the other ideas were squashed and destroyed. But sadly, persecution at its worst is a tool that is used to eradicate a perceived problem. A problem that is in direct competition with this normal status quo of society or a perceived goal of status society. And we don't even have to think hard to know that this one's real. All we have to do is look at Rwanda, the Armenian genocide in the 1920s, Kosovo, and the Jewish problem during World War II. 
In fact, all we have to do, we, don't, we just have to look in our backyard and understand that the residential schools are, are some of our history and legacy in this. In our global village now, in this time and in this place, the common cultural narrative is perceived as, and the one that's on top is this consumeristic individualism. The chief goal then of this narrative is that I pursue happiness for myself. Any limits to my freedom need to be squashed, quashed, and destroyed. Now, we can see this. We just had a federal election, right? We see this clear. This, this election was not about civil society, uh, justice, or even a pipeline. This election was fought on the battleground of whose narrative would be perceived as true. Which narrative had their version of truth? This is the air we breathe here today, people. So why do I say all of this? Why do I lead into this? What does this have to do with the promise of persecution? The reason is this. We need to understand the general way that persecution works. You know, this battle of competing narratives so that we can actually understand what Jesus says here in this text you know, without walking by quickly so we can actually understand what's going on. So we have, a ch- as a church, we've been going through the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And he's been articulating a radically different, uh, a cross-cultural narrative that is absolutely upside down to the world's. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 9, Jesus has been providing for us a narrative of happiness answering the biggest questions of life in a wholly and completely different way. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, our text this morning, is no different. Jesus looks at what it is to be happy, to be flourishing, to be in right relationship with God and man in the context of suffering and persecution. Jesus doesn't shy away from this very real and present reality that what happens when the prevailing culture of the world butts up against the culture of righteousness that he is articulating here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Simply put, Jesus says that when these two narratives collide, when the prevailing narrative of the world collides with the narrative of Jesus, if you believe in the narrative of Jesus, if you live by what he articulates there, if you understand this upside-down kingdom, your life will be marked by persecution. Full stop. Persecution is a real thing, and Jesus expects it to be normative for us. For those of us that live in this narrative of Jesus, it's a real thing, and we are to actually walk in it. That's the promise of persecution. Happy, joyful, flourishing, or in right relationship with God and man are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs, too, is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to realize that persecution is the only logical, upside, a logical conclusion to this upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Now, I've been talking about Jesus as a narrative. His, this blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I've been talking about his narrative and contrasting that with the narrative of the world. When Jesus talks about this, in this text, he talks about that as a kingdom. He refers to it as a kingdom. All of those characteristics, all of those attributes are what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Let's look at verses 3 and verse 10 again. You can kind of see this interesting thing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So sandwiched in between these kingdom of heaven statements, you've got verses 3 through 9. You've got all the characteristics of what this kingdom looks like. So imagine an envelope. Somebody gives you an envelope in the mail, and on the front of the envelope, you see this phrase, happy, flourishing, 
is, is found inside here. So, so you open it up and you see this, you, you pull out this little diamond. And you, you hold it up to the light and from every angle you've got a different way of how this beauty of this diamond looks like. And then you flip the envelope over and you realize in order to receive this diamond, you'll actually be persecuted for it. That's what he's saying here. That's what the kingdom is like. When you get to the end and you, you realize that you have to suffer, that's hard. Persecution for righteousness sake, suffering for believing and living in, as Jesus describes here is an indicator that you are living in the kingdom of heaven and that you are merciful and you have a pure heart. If you are truly a peacemaker, if you are truly a peacemaker in this narrative of Jesus, you will be hated for it, period. If you show mercy to those who don't deserve it, you're going to be scoffed at. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus describes that you're going to be maligned and publicly humiliated. The meek will be the pound of flesh destroyed by others on their journey to personal power and happiness. Being persecuted by those searching for autonomy is the natural consequences of being poor in spirit and having the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, persecution and how we react in it has always been a litmus test of faith in Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're in 21st century Vancouver, 20th century China, or 2nd century Rome. Persecution has always been a litmus test for those who receive the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Vancouver, I, I would actually like to test this one day, but in Vancouver, you can actually proclaim from a street corner that unicorns are real and the earth is flat and actually be better received than if you say, I have a traditional view of marriage and I don't march in the pride parade. I would like to test that, but anyway. See, look, unicorn and flat earthers do not threaten the supremacy of the cultural accepted truth narrative. This upside down statement, this narrative of Jesus actually, actually is a threat. The absolute claims of Jesus are threatening to the world. And that is the promise of persecution. See, if you live in this narrative of Jesus, there is a promise of persecution. Now, in a, some small anemic way, I actually have an understanding of this firsthand. A few years ago, I was involved in an organization that fed refugees in downtown Greece. Now, so just imagine a place like Union Gospel Mission, and every Monday night, 500 refugee men showed up, and, and we would give like a little gospel presentation, and then, you know, we would feed them food. No big deal, right? I've been threatened. Uh, you know, I've been jeered at, laughed about, spit upon, harassed. I've been threatened by a knife. And, you know, some guy broke a bottle and tried to, you know, harm me. No big deal, right? <clears throat> Whatever. So one Monday I was speaking. And, this, and it was after Easter. And I was trying to articulate to these men Jesus as God, as resurrected God. So I opened up the Bible and I told them a story about this one guy named Thomas. He was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And, and he doubted that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Logical thing to doubt, right? If you don't see it, how do you know it's true? So he said, look, unless I see Jesus, unless I touch him, unless I see his hands and his side, unless I see where he was hurt, poppity pop pop, uh, I won't believe. So as the story goes, Jesus appears before Thomas. Thomas is overcome and he touches Jesus. And he, and he says in John chapter 20, verse 20, he says, my Lord and my God. 
Now, when I said those words out loud in front of 500 Muslim men, a commotion began to gather in the crowd. That should have been my first clue. But no, I'm a little slow and naive. So I continue on and saying, look, Jesus as God is superior to the prophet Muhammad. Why? Because Muhammad was a corpse. He was dead. He was buried. And Jesus isn't and wasn't. Now what happens next could probably only be best described. Did you, you guys watch Trump's reception at the World Series a few weeks ago? There was a series of boos and ahs and, and the whole crowd started kind of working itself up into a frenzy. And all of a sudden, 500 men started chanting, Allah is great, Allah is great. There is no God except Allah. Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. And I'm like, holy moly, 500 refugee men at one time were chanting the Islamic call to prayer in response to my claims of Jesus. Men, 20 minutes earlier, were vying for my friendship and camaraderie to get more stuff from me, who 20 minutes after this event would be begging me for more soup. These guys were all calling for my death. I had, let's face it, I've had death threats from some of those guys from that part on. Luckily, they moved to other parts of Europe, so that's okay. In hindsight, I may have been a little bit more culturally appropriate. But the fact remains, at the declaration of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as God, Jesus as King, because of that narrative, I was now hated due to his name. My fate became intrinsically linked to the narrative of Jesus, the object of their venom. I was now a person linked to the absolute claims of Jesus and all that that entails and all the suffering that comes with it. This is the persecution that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Jake will elaborate on this further next week in verse 11 and 12. But for me, physically, I, yeah, whatever. I had some threats, no big deal. But I, I understand in a small, anemic way what it means to be hated for the name of Jesus Christ. See, as Matthew chapter 5, as, as being poor in spirit is the entrance to this narrative of the kingdom of God, the logical outcome, if accepted and lived by, is one of persecution. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 20 says this. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This Christ city is the promise of persecution. You will be hated because of the name of Jesus. This promise of persecution, and for all who walk in this narrative of Jesus, actually also makes up our second point, the problem of persecution. Now, a few years ago, I was living on the Sunshine Coast, and I took a job at the local movie theater. I did it for fun. You know, to, you know, I was losing my mind working in my garage. And I, I did it to get to know people and engage the community. It was a really fun time. So one night, a couple of years ago, it was before Christmas, we were working uh, the latest Star Wars film. And uh, I was filling up popcorn, and, and my son's friend was running the till. And it was a massive line, about 50 people. And we were, she was, like, casting orders, and I was shoveling it in, pumping the butter and getting it out. And it was a really good team. And then mid-stream, she stops... 
And she turns around, and in her, you know, outside voice, because this girl didn't have an inside voice, in her outside voice, she says to me this, so that everybody in the whole place can hear, Heath, you're a pastor, right? I'm like, uh, yep. Is it true that God hates gay people? And before I answer, she says, do you hate gay people? So I'm in the process of adding extra butter onto this popcorn, and this 16-year-old girl who's never gone to church in her life asks if I'm a homophobic, bigoted Christian. Now, you know, you know what happens, right? So I felt as if though the whole lineup kind of leaned in and bristled. They were all waiting for my response. So what did I say? Nope, and nope, and you know, and I said to her, I said, look, if you want to have a discussion about this and what I actually believe, let's talk about it during cleanup. So I take this popcorn that I've been working on. I think at the whole time I'm just pumping butter on it like this. And I bring it up to the counter and it's like flowing with butter. And then I look up and I see two people back. There's this transitioning individual that I've been getting to know. See, what precipitated, what precipitated to set the stage for this event was in 2016... There was a mass shooting in an Orlando club, a club frequented by LGBT members, LGBTQ members, and 50 of their community passed away. And it was here a small little Baptist church decided it'd be a really cool idea to picket the dead with signs that said, God hates gay people. Signs explaining that they got what they deserved. Messages articulating that they, the dead, will rot in hell because of their judgment deserved on them for their sins. Now, unfortunately, this congregation has a history of this inflammatory behavior. And as expected, this church is widely criticized by pretty much everybody because of their message of hate. And rightly so. They're condemned by the church because we should condemn this. In a very real sense, Westboro Baptist Church stands alone. This is an extreme example. I get it. But it highlights our problem very clearly. Now, bear with me. If you can actually stomach it this morning... Let's put ourselves in the shoes of an average Westboro Baptist person. You know, I really think that they believe of what they're saying is true and from God. As deluded and as repugnant as that appears to us, I think that they believe their message of hate is coming from God himself. Coinciding with that, I think they believe that because they're being faithful to this message of hate, because they're standing up for what they believe in, They conclude, if they read this text, that they would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Herein lies the problem of persecution. They think that they can engineer circumstances and events so that they can can actually be perceived as persecuted. And therefore their message is true because they understand that persecution is the litmus test of faith. I think... Uh, This issue is best explained by a 19th century Russian author and journalist, Dostoevsky. We all know his works, but he said this. It's profound. There is only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. I think this, this fear dominates the actions of the leadership and the brainwashed individuals at Westboro Baptist Church. They, they perpetrate their persecution to receive persecution because they, like I said, they understand that the litmus test gives credibility to their, their, their words and their actions. So it reveals a small problem that we have as well in a limited way. It reveals if we suffer, how do we know that our persecutions and our sufferings are for the right things. It's because we all know the problem is that, you know, 
I can suffer for some pretty stupid things. You know, I can suffer for bad decisions, for insensitive actions towards others, um, bad behavior generally. And as stated before, we can actually be persecuted because of our race, our color of our skin, our culture, our gender, and any other ideology that does not fit into the paradigm of the common cultural narrative. So if we suffer, how do we deal with Dostoevsky's dilemma? How do we know that persecution is for the right thing if we suffer? You see, deep down, we all want to know why bad things happen and is there a purpose behind it? Thankfully for us, the answer is not veiled or hidden. It's just a rather big pill to swallow. As I've already stated, this issue revolves around the collision of the narrative of the righteousness of this world versus the righteousness and the narrative of Jesus. Now, you can be a nice person. You could be a meek person. You could be a merciful person. You can live peaceably with others and still live in the narrative of the world. You'll be just like Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. You know, the nice guy, but no real threat to the status quo of anything because you haven't surrendered your narrative to the narrative of Jesus. Conversely, you can be just like Westboro Baptist. You can profess Jesus, pretend and think that you live in his narrative, but show no signs of mercy. You don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, but rather for justice. And you act as a warmonger rather than a peacemaker. You can even be persecuted for being a jerk. But you're still living and still breathing in the narrative of the world. As twisted as that sounds. The truth behind Dostoevsky's dilemma that haunted him was the reality that he actually wasn't persecuted for his Christian beliefs. Ironically, I don't know if you know, but he was sentenced to death. Luckily, he had the community, and he ended up, you know, spending a peasly, measly four years in a prison camp in Siberia. Then he was exiled for six years. Why? (laughs) Because he was part of a book club. He was reading banned books thought subversive by the Russian government. Dostoevsky was persecuted because he contravened the righteousness of Russian society. He was outside of what it was permitted to be and and how a proper Russian should act. The problem with with us is the same thing. If we suffer, how do we know our persecution? How do we know if it's for the right things? How do we deal with Dostoevsky's dilemma? Jesus states that our suffering has meaning if it's for righteousness' sake. Put another way, persecution has meaning if it's for walking in the narrative of Jesus. In order to explain this, we actually now need to turn to our last point, the hope of persecution. During World War II, ironically, um, as we're celebrating Remembrance Day today, the irony doesn't escape me, but during World War II, there was a Jewish man. He was from Vienna, and he was arrested and sent to a concentration camp. His name was Viktor Frankl. He was a doctor. He was a psychiatrist, actually. And miraculously, he survived the horrors of his internment at Auschwitz. Upon liberation, he wrote a book based on his experience, and he entitled this book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's a physical first-hand account of the trauma and the breakdown that occurs to prisoners. He narrates in a first-person First-person narrative, he narrates what it means to have absolutely everything stripped away from you. Human dignity reduced to a tattoo of who you are, not even a name. So this 
So this little book that Frankel writes, he explores the problem of persecution and suffering. It's a humbling and gripping analysis. I read it this past week again. It brought me to tears. He stands at the precipice of human despair and he takes Dostoevsky's claim and dilemma and articulates it from what a prisoner, what his point of view is. Frankel discusses what it means to be worthy of suffering. And he presents to us his understanding, the psychological analysis, and the answer to the problem of the ultimate meaning of suffering. This was his conclusion. When a man finds that it is destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering, he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. Huh, that is depressingly, that's a hopeless conclusion. One devoid of any joy or or future hope. But his, his conclusion is true if you're caught up and suffer hopelessly in the narrative of this world. And this is why Time and eternity, people are haunted by this dilemma. Frankl's conclusion could be stated as this way. When there is no purpose in suffering, suffering becomes your purpose. Frankl describes what suffering looks like outside of this narrative of Jesus, outside of hope. Luckily for us this morning, Luckily for all the people who have lived and died over countless centuries because they believed and they lived and they died and they bled in this narrative of Jesus. They were sent, they were eaten by lions and I'm not even going to articulate. You start reading books about martyrdom, thankfully, that is not the conclusion that Jesus gives us here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. We have a hope that Frankel never tapped into. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about a kingdom. Now, the cynical amongst us will be left thinking, well, that's all fine and dandy, but really, who needs, what hope is that? Like, really, who needs another authoritative dictator in their lives, right? Yeah, dictator, you know, ticket to, line to the left. No, our hope is in the author of the narrative. The hope isn't in the suffering, as Frankel articulates, but rather in the king himself, Jesus. Our hope in suffering is looking back to what this king has done for us and looking forward to what he will do. Our hope is in knowing that we are not alone in the universe. Jesus accomplishes for us what Frankel describes as every man's journey through suffering and death. Let me read the quote again. When man finds that it is destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task, He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering, he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. There has only been one man whose purpose was to suffer as Frankel articulates. And that's Jesus, the king himself. We have hope Because the king suffers for us, not the other way around. The God of the universe sends his son to suffer and to die so that we do not have to be alone 
in our persecution. I'm going to read a long text here, so bear with me. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 31 through 39. It'll be up on the screen for you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our hope, people, our meaning in persecution rests on the sacrificial love of God. We are loved. We are accepted. We have hope through the death of Jesus. But more than that, Jesus, the one who suffers for us, has victory in our sufferings. He defeated persecution itself, death. And our hope rests on the fact That right now, he's the king who sits on the throne and intercedes for us so that we can actually be connected to the source of love, God himself. A king who will one day come again to restore justice. This hope is the reality of the upside-down kingdom that, frankly, he completely misses. And because of this, we have the assurance that nothing, Paul was pretty articulate, that absolutely nothing can separate us from his love. We don't have to fall into Dostoevsky's dilemma. Our suffering, for righteousness' sake, has meaning in the love of God. Truly happy, joyful, flourishing are those who are persecuted, who suffer for living rightly in the narrative of Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the acceptance and the meaning found in the love of God. That is our hope in persecution. So where does that leave us this morning? Where does that leave us this morning? And I think most of us are here. You know, we could be like Ned Flanders. You know, we can happy, you know, the happy-go-lucky Christian guy in The Simpsons. We can walk around when, you know, and oakley-doakley our way through life. We can have enough faith to be accepted in a church community and go under the radar. We can appear righteous, but at the same time, live in the narrative of the world in our family life and on our careers. We're afraid to stick our head up because we don't want it whacked or cut off. So by default, by default, we become comfortable. And we just live with the shame of our oakley-doakley nature, and we just accept it as the life, as status quo. Let me ask you a question, a hard question this morning. How many of you would lose your job if you verbally acknowledged that you were a Christian this week? This is where the rubber meets the road. 
See, we live in a time and place. We are living in a narrative. We're living in the narrative of Jesus, rather, will actually cause us increasingly uh, to be persecuted in society. I was having a conversation with this Russian lady last night, and she asked, you know, she asked what I did. I told her, I'm a pastor, and, and I told her I was a Christian, and she's like, what is a Christian? See, we, we will, she says, isn't that a kind of an antiquated thing? Like, who, who is that anymore? See, we will be seen as part of an antiquated past, a colonial past, an abusive past that needs to be cut out, a disease that needs to be removed to be therefore persecuted. I say this as a rebuke for myself this morning. We need to repent of our indifference and our shallowness in our existence and our day-to-day lives. And we need to once again rely on the hope that we read of here in Romans 8. The power that comes with this hope. The hope that even if we lose our jobs and our reputations, that we will not be separated from the love of God. That's hard. Some of us are also like the people at Westboro Baptist. We're callous, we're insensitive, and we ram wrath and judgment down other people's throats. But yet, worse, we actually, in our pride, engineer uh, circumstances in which we can suffer to prove our point of our rightness. Quite frankly, we just need to repent of this. We need to repent of our behavior and walk in step in the narrative of Jesus. We need to show his countercultural message of love, of mercy, of peace to a hurting world without meaning. We need to extend forgiveness to those who don't deserve it because, because they're just like us. We didn't deserve it. Some of us here this morning might be like Frankel even. You may, you may not be sure about this whole Christianity bit, uh, but deep down you know you're stuck on the hamster wheel of Dostoevsky's dilemma. Continually searching for the meaning of life. Understanding, trying to figure out what it means that is to suffer when everything in the world has gone wrong. And ultimately, you'll just live in a low-grade stress of wondering, you know, is it all worth it? This morning, you need to know, if you link your life with Jesus, his narrative, if you come to Jesus as king, surrender your need for meaning, your need to control, your need for happiness to the one, if you surrender that to Jesus, I can almost guarantee that it will be greater what you, what you lose will be far greater when you see the love of Jesus. You will actually be satisfied. Now, some of you here, I'm under no illusion, bear the marks of persecution. I don't know any of your stories, but I know, I'm sure some of you have struggled. You've been, been hurt and you're bearing the marks of persecution in the past or even right now. You need to remember that your suffering has meaning because Jesus suffers for you. And loves you. And nothing can separate you from that fact. So would you please stand with me as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.